Welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number six, recorded on April 8th, 2011. I'm Tim Kripe, your host here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and today I don't have any of my co-hosts with me because we have a special guest, and uh, they all wanted to meet with him separately during the day, so the only time I could find was during our faculty meeting we're there at right now and I'm playing hooky from. So uh, today I get to welcome... Archie Blyer. Hi, Tim. Thank you for coming, Archie. Glad to be here. And thank you for agreeing to be subjected to this this podcast. Archie is an icon in the field of pediatric oncology, and I'm not going to give a long introduction because uh, it would take the entire hour, but he is the medical director of clinical research at St. Charles Cancer Care. I knew him from his days both as the director of the Children's Cancer Group in the 90s, as I was in an institution that was a member of CCG, and then also uh, he was well known as the head of the program at MD Anderson, the pediatric program. And he's made many seminal contributions to the field and has over 250 publications, so very honored to have you here to share some of your thoughts with us today. Let's get on with it. So um, I kind of wanted to go back to the beginning. Can you tell me how you got interested in medicine in the first place? I attribute that to uh, my wife now of 44 years, who uh, was a student nurse when I was an undergraduate in Boston. And because I was in a fraternity that required civil service, uh, for some reason opted to uh, provide that at the Mass General Hospital, where I ran into her. And when I realized that uh, working working the halls, also walking the halls of Massachusetts General Hospital and engaging myself in patients um, and having a uh, girlfriend who was a nursing student, it, it opened my eyes to a whole different field from the architecture program and political science major that I was in at MIT. So it's really not because I wanted to do it. It's because uh, she she was a nurse, and uh, I found it was uh, a wonderful place to be. So it, it began rather indirectly. Women tend to have a profound uh, influence on us, don't they? <laughs> I think we covered that quite well. <laughs> so um, when did you? Where did you train, and sort of how did you get into pediatrics? <clears throat> Yeah, after uh, a couple years as an architecture student in a five-year program and a half a year or more in political science, and then the uh, Massachusetts General Experience, I decided to switch to life sciences at MIT, which uh, I think was a misnomer, at least then. It wasn't life science at all. It was uh, molecular biology. <laughs> in that sense, it was... Uh, at uh, the, the finest level in terms of the macroorganism of a human being, it was looking at messenger RNA, which was in vogue back then. So I really uh, spent two years trying to catch up to graduate in time, a four-year program, um, in all of the sciences that are relevant to getting to medical school. Um, after that, I went to the University of Rochester in upstate New York, really wonderful medical school. I was, enjoyed my entire four years there, spent a lot of it in research. Those were the days when we had three months off just to do research. Um, also had time over the summer months um, and, and on weekends. And I uh, was able to finish with a, uh, a additional ad, uh, acknowledgement for doing research during those years. Uh, from there, it was on to uh, mixed medicine and 
internship and sorry, mixed internship in medicine and pediatrics at the University of Washington at Children's Hospital in Seattle. So went coast to coast. Yeah, in fact, my wife and I uh, took a forty-year-old uh, tent and camped across from Rochester and all the state parks. Wow! Uh, over a couple of weeks to start on time. I can't remember what it was. July 1st or July 7th, I think they gave me seven days uh, to, to make the trip. But, um, yeah, and, and after that, switched from medicine and pediatrics into pediatrics to do a pediatric residency in my second and third years there, uh, followed by three years at the National Cancer Institute, and then back to Seattle as a member of the faculty in pediatrics. So those were the days when children with cancer didn't do so well, I'm assuming. We're not going to talk about years, but... But uh, why was that attractive to you? My first patient, a two-year-old boy, Jimmy Mortensen, um, the first night I was on the intensive care unit, I think that was probably uh, fall of 1971, uh, 1969, my first patient uh, died within a few weeks, um, and that tweaked my interest in pediatric cancer in a negative way. What I didn't want to do is go into pediatric hematology and oncology. I knew I wanted to do pediatrics, but it wasn't going to be that specialty. Uh, the reason I did it anyway is that two years later, I went to the National Cancer Institute, and because I was interested in the adverse effects of, of drugs, hmm. my plan was to do pediatric clinical pharmacology from the point of view of adverse effects and how to improve the safety of drugs in children. Uh, that was in vogue at the time, the issue of uh, clinical pharmacology and adverse effects. It was discovered that many people were dying of them, and I was worried the same thing was occurring in children. So I went to the National Cancer Institute, and I decided to go on the leukemia service as a recommendation to learn about the bad effects of drugs so that I could do something about preventing them. So I didn't want to take care of these children, per se. I want to learn how to prevent them from sure. having adverse toxicities. Um, or toxicities in general, but within weeks of going on the leukemia service, in the heyday of new discoveries, when we were beginning to see for the first time length, longer survivals, at the time, for example, five uh, percent of ten percent of pediatric cancer patients were surviving. Uh, less than five percent with acute lymphoblastic leukemia were surviving, and I that was our primary patient population. So in my first year at the NCI, I lost 80-90% of the patients that I started with. Um, but I saw that there was real hope and things were changing. It was really dynamic. It was uh, the year when famous investigators like Jay Frywag, Tom Fry, my bosses at the, at, on the pediatric service, Bridget Leventhal, uh, Bob Graw, Art Levine, and Ron Yankee on the hemo, on the hemostasis and uh, thrombocytopenia service. And then because we were required to take care of the adult patients on service at night and weekends, I got to know the masters of medical oncology, Vince DeVita, uh, George uh, Canellis, Phil Shine, and my colleagues uh, in, in the clinical research associate level who took care of those patients, who subsequently became cancer center directors, all of them. Um, it was such an exciting time, I decided to give up on the idea of using my efforts to try to prevent toxicities and to using 
those toxicities to help kids with cancer. And since 1972, when I made that decision, I've been doing it ever since. I haven't looked and back. I haven't, huh? haven't looked back. Uh, well, with a dream team like that to launch you, I'm sure it was an exciting time. It, it was uh, unbelievable. It was just... It, so I was very lucky to have that uh, had that opportunity, as opposed to Vietnam, which was the other choice. Well, there's, yeah. Well, yeah, it's an easy choice there. So, you know, there's this book I'm, I'm listening to right now on, on audio tape uh, that was recently published about uh, cancer. It's called The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. And, and it's all a lot about leukemia. Yeah, and it's all about all those guys you just mentioned and Sydney what the Farber time was like. Yeah, Sydney yeah. Farber, a lot of Sydney Farber. Anyway, it's very fascinating to hear him tell the story about that time. And one of the things that struck me that I sort of I knew but hadn't realized before was that the when all these systemic drugs were starting to be used and you were starting to get remissions in patients for the first time and how exciting that was and they're going around the country sharing the news and spreading the word and then they started relapsing mainly in the CNS. Uh, and I know that's something that you spent a lot of time solving so what, what was that time like for you, and how did you go about solving that problem? I mentioned that my first patient in the pediatric intensive care unit uh, was admitted for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. But my first patient at the National Cancer Institute that I took care of on my first night on call uh, was treated in the clinic that afternoon by one of my clinical research associate colleagues who had, given, uh, who had made the diagnosis of CNS relapse that day and who had admitted her for intrathecal methotrexate therapy, because that was the, the approach at the time. And because of the way the service was organized, uh, he was unable to go home at 6 or 7 o'clock, and I was to give that dose of intrathecal chemotherapy that evening. She was symptomatic. She needed uh, some relief. And that was my first injection into the CSF of any patient, I did it about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and to this day, I'm not sure precisely what happened, but she nearly died overnight. She had a avert, serious, acute um, hypersensitivity or arachnoiditis reaction. She uh, wound up being almost being intubated. Um, she had a CSF count the next time we tapped her again in the thousands of neutrophils, uh, it, was, it was acute inflammatory response. Um, that's what got me interested in what I had just done, this drug called methotrexate that stuck in her CSF. Um, that must have been frightening. It was, uh, well, and, and it probably changed my life forever because for the next 20 years I decided to study the CSF pharmacology of methotrexate and uh, what had happened to her. And as I already said, I'm not sure what did but it got me to learn a lot more about that approach in, in kids and later in adults and how best to give that drug. Um, it, it, it started my career that one night um, in July 1971. Sounds like it's still as vivid as if it were yesterday. And, and it is. Uh, well, the, the, the rest may be history, but uh, I can tell you where that led very, very soon. We were doing spinal taps because of the high incidence of CNS relapse in many patients. And knowing how to do lumbar punctures in children, having to do it as a pediatrician, pediatric resident, to rule out infection, diagnose meningitis, um, it was clear, but even more so, 
during my experience in the first months at the National Cancer Institute, how traumatic that was. Um, because 20% of the kids we were treating were lapsing in the central nervous system at the time, um, the discomfort of putting something into their back and holding them in a fashion that would create... We didn't have any uh, anti-anxiolytic or rapid-acting sedatives like propofol at the time. It was very traumatic. And we were doing... I know one child, uh, Mark Nave, who uh, died uh, years later, but Mark Nave had 52 spinal taps in the space of a couple years wow. during those years of uncertainty because he had multiple CNS relapses. So that, that led to the uh, intraventricular approach. Yeah, you did a lot of work with the mile reservoirs. and Well, it was on the, on the second floor of the clinical center where the pediatric leukemia service existed. And I, I don't remember where it was when I read the New England Journal report, but uh, somebody had devised a method to give intraventricular antifungal therapy to treat uh, CNS candidiasis and fungal uh, diseases. Um, and there was a, I'll never forget the uh, drawing in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed this device that had a dome. It was a, put outside the skull, and the base of the dome, the chamber, had a tube that went in the ventricle. And it's like I'm looking at that today, because the primary author of that was Ayub Omaya, and he was on the 10th floor above me, uh. Because I didn't know until That's I read great. the fine print he was in the building. Um, so I'm a first-year clinical research associate in the military, the very lowest possible functional position. Um, didn't know any better. I took the elevator up to the 10th floor, found his office, and said, Dr. Maya, can I have your... You know, and, and I don't know that my boss would have done that. I don't think so. But not knowing better, I just walked in his office and said, you know, is there any chance that we could use this in children? And that led to the obvious answer and to the history. Not only did we start using it in children, it eventually was used in every patient at the NIH getting intrathecal chemotherapy for prophylaxis, for fungal disease, for... Uh, um, and it, it, it was such a... Because of the number of injections we do in those days, it was so dramatic. This boy with 50-plus intrathecal injections, as soon as that reservoir went in, he, at the age of four, maybe five, and his parents, and all the nurses, the entire staff, it was like a totally different child. Um, and, and when he died, uh, the one thing he said was thank you, and I think he was just talking about that ability to not have to have another spinal tap. So I've always appreciated the Omaya Reservoir, but more importantly, the need to just go find the expert, the source person, if you will, the horse's mouth, and just ask them directly. Is there something we can do together to make this work? It speaks to interdisciplinary science and collaborations amongst people that are studying different problems but might have common solutions. They may be totally different. They may be in another building or around the other side of the world. And now with uh, the communicative systems we have, and phones and Internet access and text messaging, there's no reason to go around the other side of the world and work with the, uh, that interdisciplinary other source of expertise. Uh, yeah, it's... Well, that's it's great like, that you had the gumption to go up there and Or, and or, or <laughs> for the lack innocence. of tactful... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's to, the innocence. It's what we need. Um, 
it's it's probably uh, underutilized today. But if we just are, are willing to tackle the problem with the best resources, where are they may exist. So after the NIH, um, this this was all at the NIH, correct? Correct. Uh, yeah, it was the three years that I was on. Sounds the, like a lot happened during that short period of time. Oh, <laughs> a lot uh, of memorable things. Correct. And after that, you went back to Seattle. Right. I was uh, there for my internship in medicine and pediatrics, as I mentioned, um, and I fell in love with the Northwest. Um, to this day, Seattle is still one of the best cities in the world for learning and interacting with uh, science and medicine and engineering and technology. I mean, it is the uh, place where Microsoft and software development occurred, Starbucks and Adobe. It's, it's a wonderful city. Um, so I, I wanted to always go back. And my boss there was head of the Cancer Center's Review Committee. His name is Jack Hartman. But more importantly, he was the third chair of the Children's Cancer Group. For only a couple of years, he got so involved with the National Cancer Institute that he couldn't keep the CCG position open. But he introduced me to the Children's Cancer Group in the following fashion. I went out there for an interview during the last year at the National Cancer Institute. Um, I saw him for five to ten minutes. He gave me a typewriter. He put me in a closet across the hallway. No phone, just a typewriter. And he said, you're going to write a grant application to the NCI that the Children's Cancer Group can support in measuring intrathecal methotrexate in our patients in terms of CSF levels so that we can find out what should be done in terms of dosing. Right? Um, I didn't have an interview with Jack Hartman. I had a directive to get a grant, an <laughs> R01 grant, well, which I did get. That's as, great. But not, in, not just an hour or two I was in that closet. I went back to the NCI and spent weeks working on that. But that's what Jack expected. And to this day, I've always admired his uh, bluntness of just doing it. I mean, he was the uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center Review Director and also the Children's Cancer Group Chair. So he, he was one of the reasons why I got to where I am today. Thank you, Jack. Great. Um, and then when did you go to MD Anderson? You spent a lot of time there as well. I left the, the University of Washington in Seattle Children's Hospital after tw the total of 20 years in 1990. And the reason I went to MD Anderson more than anything else, because leaving Seattle is, is, is hard to do. And in fact, my wife will tell you this better than me, I had accepted the job in Houston. And then because of Seattle's... Uh, characteristics and potential, and by then Starbucks and Microsoft was taking off, I, I changed my mind, and I actually wanted to stay. Uh, the problem was I'd already sold the house. Uh, we had sold the house, <laughs> <laughs> and my wife was on her way. So I uh, had to go, and uh, the, the, the driver was that everybody at that place, MD Anderson, was working on the same problem, on cancer. We were all in together. We were a family. And to, that was the best part of it, no doubt. I mean, it was not the division of pediatrics, the department of pediatrics, the division, uh, trying to find its niche in a university that had surgery, general medicine, uh, all the other specialties, all trying to get to the, where they wanted to be. Everybody at MD Anderson was in the cancer business, and that's 
That was what attracted me, and that's what really did make the difference. So was it there that you started to realize that adolescents, young adults, was a special need? It, 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 true, but it didn't come out so much of the Andy Anderson experience. Uh, I did have several patients in their early 20s, uh, and, and, and quite a few patients in the late teenagers. But, but the, the inciting factor was, um, as the chair of CCG, wondering how well we were doing and trying to prove that we needed to keep our group chairs grant funded by the NCI. And I was looking for every piece of evidence that could present to the study section, to the review group. And um, I'm not sure exactly why I had the 15 to 19-year-old group in the data, but it was there. And it then became obvious that compared to the 10 to 14-year-olds, and especially the less than 5 and 5 to 9-year-olds, uh, we weren't in CCG accomplishing nearly as much as we had in the uh, younger age groups. And that 15 to 19-year-old group was published in 1996 in a rare journal. I think it was called the Journal of Disease Management or Disease Registry Management. Um, but it was so dramatic that the drop-off in five-year survival rates in CCG patients 15 to 19 years old led to the next step. Well, then what's happening from 20 to 25 and 25 up? And that's when this gap was apparent to us that uh, uh, in the United States, and then later we learned this in Canada and Australia and Europe, that the progress being made under the age of 15, especially under the age 10, was nowhere as uh, represented in the older teenagers. And that's how I got into AYUA. But it was that 15 to 19 year old observation in 1996 that led to, to getting into the AY range. I did have several young adult patients, as I mentioned, who didn't do well. One died of neuroblastoma at the age of 22, mm. um, despite sending him to the best CCG institutions in the country for MIBG therapy and the like. Uh, that helped raise the uh, awareness for me, uh, but it was the national data that really struck me as a need. And certainly the data you showed at your seminar today, which our listening audience can't see, but um, was pretty striking about the differences in that older, young sure, adult Jim, But what I didn't show today, because uh, we focused on ALL, what I didn't show today was an update of that data. So if you go back 10 years when we noticed that there was a gap in progress, that we were not increasing the survival rates in 20 to 40 year old patients and not in, even in 15 to 19-year-olds like we were in younger patients, um, I've had an opportunity to update that because every year we've accrued more evidence. So now the uh, comparison is five-year survival rates from 1986 to, 1990, to, to 2002 versus the era prior to 1986, from 1975 to 96, and it doesn't look any different. Mm. I thought we were making some inroads but especially in the 15 to 25-year-olds, we still haven't improved relative to where they were 15 to 30 years ago. Their five-year survival rates for all cancer in general. Now, there's somewhere we've done made difference. Sure. Uh, ALL is not one of them. I think you saw that. Um, and other, some other solid tumors. But in general, we, we really haven't clear-cut evidence that the five-year survival rates have improved in the young adult and older adolescent age group like they have in the younger and older. And I know you talked about a lot of different possible factors for that. One of the biggest being that they actually have a different biology 
but also they're not being treated as intensely at adult centers, perhaps, as we tend to do at pediatric centers. At least for uh, ALL, we've got good data now, and the adults are beginning to use the pediatric regimens, and they're hopefully beginning to realize they got to keep to the intensity that's designed in those regimens, and that's a, that's a, a difficult uh, challenge. But um, there's increasing amount of data that the disease isn't the same, and I think that's going to be true for ALL. Seems true for breast cancer and colon cancer. That is, the the young adults have a different type of colon cancer or breast cancer than the older adults. We know about triple negative breast cancer, but even within the triple negative category, there may be a different genotype to the the malignant phenotype or to the malignant cell. Um, ALL is fascinating because there's a new peak that wasn't previously recognized of of, uh, incidence between 15 and 25. There's also a uh, increasingly... Uh, it, the incidence is increasing, which is not true in any other age group. Um, we also, from our colleagues in Europe and to some extent in the United States, uh, know that the types of ALL that we can define by cytogenetic or molecular abnormalities like Philadelphia chromosome, pods of ALL, and the translocations, um, that this age group, 15 to 30, has less known about it in terms of identifying these features uh, than in any other age group. So that leads me to think we are yet to, to develop the probes to know what type of ALL that is, let alone the, the peak I spoke about and the rapid drop in survival as soon as our patients are diagnosed after the age of 13, 14, 15, which uh, our you reader, listeners can't see either, but uh, it's pretty dramatic. This brings up the topic of research. The uh, success in the younger age groups has led us all to sort of have a dictum that research cures cancer, that we can make progress. Sounds like we need a lot more research in this age group specifically. First, uh, the number of patients in the age group on clinical trials is at a age spectrum low, less than 2% of 20 to 40-year-olds, and only 5 to 10% of 15 to 19-year-olds are in clinical trials at any time during their cancer experience. Um, second, the number of specimens that are in our biorepositories to allow us to do molecular research, translational research, is the lowest in this age group. It's even hard to do the studies we want to do because we don't have enough specimens in our biobanks. Um, and that's true at um, many centers, definitely true in the national uh, reservoirs like the human tissue connective, connective uh, sorry, the uh, cooperative human tissue banks. Um, so <clears throat> we can't do the research the way we can in younger and older patients even if we want to, but at the very least, we can put them on clinical trials, which enables us to get these specimens and to have uh, a plan of translational research for them. So, no, it's, it's, it's a matter of not having uh, studied the problem. So it sounds like a clear message to uh, future physicians, students, and current oncologists to come up with more protocols, more be more active in enrolling this age group of patients, collecting specimens, and... And, and working on mechanisms to enable young adults and older adolescents to access trials, too. Uh, one of the problems that may have been remedied in part is if, if they don't have health insurance, which is what happens to 18-year-olds, uh, trying to get them on a clinical trial that would be covered by uh, insurance 
um, is an, another limiting factor. So at, at least the Affordable Care Act passed a year, a couple weeks ago, uh, required that all young adults up to the age of 26 be covered on their parents' insurance. And I've seen that make a difference already. A number of uh, young adults where I live are now being insured, and they can uh, be treated on clinical trials because uh, they have some resources they wouldn't otherwise have. So with the current climate of funding at the national level, and what, what do you sort of foresee for the future of cancer research and the challenges and things that other things that we need to do as a society to make faster progress? Well, I think we're in the, the economic uh, challenge that we face in general. I think things are going to get worse before they get better. And I think probably uh, the children's oncology group is going to have to find the alternative resources that we haven't had today. Um, we know that the adult cooperative groups are under an entire new reorganizational problem because of limiting funds. Um, so I'm not sure I can be too optimistic about the near future. Uh, for the long term, though, once the economy recovers, I think that we'll recover some of our ability to fund new programs. And what I really hope occurs is that uh, foundations like the Affleck Foundation, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, uh, continue to support the effort and that perhaps new sources of funds, uh, even the pharmaceutical industry, have uh, been filling some of the void in the meantime. But uh, I think the real opportunity for the new administration of the Children's Oncology Group is going to be that CureSearch and the National Childhood Cancer Foundation will be able to really make uh, strides in getting the public and families and survivors um, and then the corporate world to contribute more to AYA oncology research. So we can uh, leave this podcast with some hope that that, that will happen. Oh, I've, I've, I'm definitely hopeful. I mean, it's not just the uh, Blair's eternal optimism, but, um, you know, if Affleck Foundation contributes $1.3 million, Livestrong Young Adult Alliance has just decided to fund in part some of the efforts that COG is doing with their AYA research program. It's only 25000 for this year, but it's a start, which we didn't have last year. And with uh, other inroads, I'm I'm quite optimistic. I, I think it's going to depend more on the overall economy than, than just these other resources for us. So um, I'm looking forward to being part of that. Great. Well, I know with you carrying the, the flag of the AYA, which I don't know that we defined as adolescent young adults, but with you uh, getting out there and spreading the word and, and others as well, I'm sure we're going to make inroads and very much appreciate your being here and sharing your thoughts with us today. Well, thanks, Tim, and uh, congratulations on creating a new mechanism for us to catch up with each other. I can't wait to use podcasts in the water while swimming and having a, a shuffle with a nano pad attached to my uh, mask, my swim mask, and then earbuds that can let me listen to what you're accomplishing. With Sounds this. like a great way to pass the time. We do invite listeners to email us with questions or comments, and I'm hoping that if anyone listens to this in the future and has a question or comment for you, that I might direct it to you and, and get your response or maybe even get you back on the phone uh, for discussion. Uh, we do ask our listeners to send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. 
So don't hesitate to write in. So thank you once again, Dr. Blyer, for being with us. And everyone, remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.